Welcome to another edition of Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making. The complete story of America's bloodiest prison. And I'm Jim Chapman. And I'm Woody Overton. Welcome y'all back to another episode of Bloody Angola. And we appreciate you listening and liking, subscribing, and all that good stuff. We want to thank our Patreon members who are... Very instrumental in the show. Y'all stay tuned at the end of the show, and we're, we're going to talk about that some more. But, Jim, today we got something. We always said it would be different, right? And today yeah. this is a very, very interesting story, which I do have a lot of personal connection with. But I think we can title this one The Black Rhino. The Black Rhino, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I knew the Black Rhino when he was becoming the Black Rhino. This guy's name is Clifford Etienne, and that's y'all for you not from South Louisiana. It's E T I E N N E. Um, Clifford Etienne grew up in New Iberia, Louisiana, home of Tabasco. Uh, yeah. uh, we call it affectionately the Berry. If you're from South Louisiana, they just yeah. call it the Berry. I got a fraternity brothers from down there, and Bobby Bodin. If you if you listen, shout out the probation parole, state of Louisiana. But there's not much out there either. No, it's, it's it's the Tabasco plain right. if you're going to New yeah, Iberia. It's grown, it's grown up a lot over the years. But back then, uh, and specifically in this time frame that I'm going to be talking about, um, Clifford Etienne was coming up, and he was truly basically a stud. Yeah. Yeah, he, he dominated in wrestling. He played baseball. Linebacker in football. Track and field. He threw the disc in the shot. Six foot two, 290 pounds. Big boy. And was recruited by LSU, Nebraska, Texas A&M, Oklahoma, which so, these so, days are dominant, but back in those days were really extremely dominant. dominant. And, and re- recruited as a linebacker. Yep. And he just was a stud stud. Um but, you know, sometimes life happens and people try cocaine or different things and they hang with the wrong crowd. And that's what Clifford started to do. And he could have had 
the world is his oyster and he would in later years and seems like history repeats itself unfortunately but back then on a certain day in lafayette louisiana when clifford was a young man yeah he was 18 he uh, as most 18 year olds do, he, you know, was getting away with what he could right. and him and four friends decided it would be a good idea to rob some customers at a shopping mall in Lafayette. Yeah. I, it was the only shopping mall in Lafayette. <laughs> the, uh, and that was in 1988, right? Right. And so I was there in 1989, uh, and when USL was USL, now it's ULL. Uh, go, go Cajuns! Yes, but the they they robbed some people, and ultimately he got busted. Yeah, he got sentenced to forty years, and yeah. uh, he first stint was bloody Angola. That was yeah, where he right. first went. And in forty years, y'all would have been the minimum on uh, armed robbery. It, it carries up to ninety nine years in the state of Louisiana. So he's, I think he was like eighteen. He was. Yeah, he's eighteen years old. He gets sentenced, and they ship him to Bloody Angola. That's right. And eventually, after a few transfers, he ends up at DCI. That's Dixon Correctional Institute, y'all, and that's where I would come to know him. Um, what happened was I was working the working cell block, in which I've heard me talk about before. The It's different than admin seg because there's two men to a cell. But working cell block is where you, you only get sent for major rule violations and basically for street charges, whether you're smuggling dope, you attack an officer, um, you rape somebody, or you fight with weapons. Now, I had two tiers of the working cell block that I ran, and I can remember distinctly Clifford Etienne was in a cell with a, with a guy from Livingston Parish, a, a white guy from Livingston Parish. Now, Clifford Etienne is a black man, and they were in the next to the last cell at the end of uh, the tier. And the tier only had cells on one side. Y'all faced the screen windows. They had a couple black and white TVs down the tier. But I would um, stop and, and talk to them all the time because the guy from the LP, I knew him from the street. And I knew him back from the you know the club days when you some of the same people. And, you know, you're not supposed to become friends and stuff with, with the convicts, which – I submit to you that when you are working 12-hour shifts in um, two-on, two-off, three-on, two-off, two-on, three-off, but even on my days off, they were the Department of Corrections was always short, and they had an on-call list, and basically, you know, I could work 30 days a month. But I'm doing time just like they're doing time. I was doing time just like they were doing time. So when you – they locked those doors behind you on that 12 hour shift. You know, you can only shower them and, and feed them and have nurse call so much and shit it gets a little boring. And so, you know, I would stop and, and I did a couple of years back there and I say I did like, like a convict, but it really was <laughs> like doing time. Did a couple of years back there. And, and when you get locked up on the work at cell block, the, once you get locked up, you have to do 90 days without a low court or a high court write-up, and then you, 
you go back before the board and they basically hear your case as to whether or not you can be released to the general population. Well, the problem with that is, y'all, I mean, the working cell block is basically the worst of the worst because these are people that can't even follow the basic rules in prison, even the small rules and the ones that, like I said, were back there for serious charges. Now, the white guy in the cell was back there for having or suspicion of having sex with a female guard. That's a no-no. But, I mean, it is what it is, right? (laughs) (laughs) If you can get over and do what you do, that's what they're going to do. Now, uh, his cellie was Clifford Etienne. And so I began to talk to him. Now, look, this is a massive dude. Now, I was 6'2", probably 250 at the time, and, and he's 6'2", 300 pounds. He was all muscle. I mean, like solid as a rock. But he was a really cool dude, and I say that. I mean, I know he robbed people and shit like that. Uh, but, I mean, he could have been an asshole to me or anything else, but I would hang out and and – Stand in front of the cell you know, late at night and shit. But well, I'm entertainment for them also. And we were talking, and I found out that Etienne was the boxer, and he was actually on DCI's boxing team. Uh, um, but I also found out that he was an accomplished artist. And he's asked me when we we're talking one night. He said, "You know, you, you married? You dating someone?" I said, "I'm dating someone." He said, "He." can you give me a picture of her? I'm like, bro, I'm not bringing you a picture of my girlfriend. <laughs> you know? He said, no, no, no. He, he said, I'm an artist. I'm going to draw, I'm going to draw a picture and you can give it to her. I'm like, all right. So the next time I came back to work, I had a little, got a little snapshot and I gave it to him. And the next evening I came back to work and he had hand sketched an, an exact likeness of this girl. And I can't remember her last name. I think her first name was Dodie. But the, and I mean, it was just, fucking piece of artwork and i was blown away it's on a um, basic piece of paper done in pencil i'm like bro you got talent right um so i didn't know that what i would come to find out later on and what we're going to talk about but also uh, you know i I talked to him about boxing and because i like boxing i like to box and both my grandfathers went to college for boxing one at usl and one for lsu and they box on that the college boxing teams. And so I asked him, I said, you know, you get into a fight, just one that bullshit. And I said, if you're going to hit somebody and, you know, he said, Woody, if you're going to hit somebody, I want you to hit them as hard as you can in the stomach. Don't let them know it's coming. You rear back full body swing, hit them in the stomach. And I said, why is that? He said, cause if you do it right, you're going to knock the air out of them. He said, then they're defenseless. He said, you can just beat them to a pulp. Yeah. But the he would go on to become the boxing inner prison boxing champion for the state of Louisiana, and the y'all each prison has their own boxing team, and it's big shit. Yeah, and I'll tell you about. uh, So there, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about his reputation in prison, and a little bit about a trainer that had actually started working with him in prison. So there was a guy named Vlaris Cooper yeah. and Vlaris Cooper had a nickname. It was whoop and they called whoop. him whoop yeah. 
because of boxing. Whoop, whoop. whoop. That's how he would say when you punch, it was a whoop. So everybody knew whoop in the prison system. He was a steward of the Louisiana uh, prison boxing scene. He was an inmate himself. And whoop, he didn't have the pleasure of meeting NTN until after the boxer. He was already the most dominant prison fighter in Louisiana. So as what he said, these these different prisons have their own boxing teams. Angola has one. DCI has one. Uh, there's one in North Louisiana. Hunts. Uh, Hunts has one. So so this is a big deal in prison. Uh, these boxing teams and whoop was the guy who kind of managed that even as an inmate yeah, um and it basically helped him etm uh perfect his craft better absolutely yeah. he had heard about this guy this six foot two 290 pound fighter and he started working with ntn etn and uh you know from the first second he saw him, he could tell from his movement he had a ton of natural talent. He countered right. He stepped back right. He circled correctly. Uh, and as a matter of fact, Whoop would de- would describe him as a prison version of Muhammad Ali, y'all. That's, That's how good he yeah. was. Anybody describes you as Muhammad Ali, you're good. Uh, the prison version of Muhammad Ali from a guy who really knew that sport was amazing. So ETN continued to dominate in the prison world. He actually won 30 bouts, right. never lost. So, y'all, real quick, the the um, certainly they would practice amongst themselves at, at uh, you know Dixon Correctional Institute, et cetera, and but. The shadow these, box. Right, right. These, well, you locked in a cell, you got a lot of time to shadow box. Right? <laughs> That's right. But when we, these bouts were talking about, they would actually go to other prisons or sometimes they would host it there and they would fight against other prisoners in the state. And at the end of the year, whoever had the most wins got the banner. That's right. And these these were big deals. Right. Uh, As a matter of fact, family of these prisoners would go to the boxing matches and they would they would have to pay. They would have to buy tickets. It was five dollars for adults, three dollars for children back then. Yeah. And you would watch as if you were watching a sanctioned event on HBO. And and even though they wore headgear, the um, the bouts were three three minute rounds. Yeah. Uh, um, but I would bet you like people love to go see the radio because yeah. it makes them care about getting hurt and laying up in an infirmary in the air conditioner rather than a cell block. The, I bet you these guys got in there. I, I, I wish I, I would have got to see one and just, just try to absolutely annihilate. I'm sure there was a lot of first round knockouts. Headgear, no headgear. Headgear really doesn't mean shit. (laughs) It's not like you're wearing the NFL helmet. Yeah. Oh yeah. And these are, these are, you know, some of these people lifers, y'all. I mean, they look, they're in there and they're swinging and, and you've heard on real life, real crime. What do you just describe like prison muscle? It's a totally different type of muscle. And all these guys had it. And he fought in the heavyweight and the super heavyweight divisions. So he was fighting the baddest of the bad, the biggest of the big and beating them and beating them. Uh, just never losing 30 bouts inside. And that gets around. So outside right. of the prison system, 
uh, Don King and all these guys yeah, are hearing writers. about this Clifford Etienne and how how he is the toughest man in prison and right. winning winning all these bouts. And after his tenth year in prison, he gets paroled. Right, which is basically y'all. I, I would tell you that that's because of the outside influences from these promoters. Um, and they were like. This guy can be heavyweight champion of the world. So they go in for the pro board. Look, we we got contracts. We're going to train him. We're going to keep him on the straight and narrow. He can be on parole if need be, but we need permission, you know, to get him, get his boxing license and everything else. Well, and let me tell you how promoters think. So number one, you've got a extremely talented individual to start with. Right. He's getting paroled from prison. Here's your chance. And and I would, I don't know this is fact, but I would imagine his success helped with his parole because in a parole board's mind, this guy can probably actually rehabilitate and change his life because he's going to have unique opportunities not everybody is going to have when they're released from prison. He was well known. Let me digress for a second. The reason he was on the working cell block, he got in a fight with a guard. But a, a correctional officer and, named Woody Everton. No, no it wasn't me. <laughs> I wouldn't have fought that day. No. But the, um, so he got in a fight with a correctional officer. Now, that, when they went to the board here, and I remember him telling me this, that he had, he had already been on the boxing team. And so the board considered his hands deadly weapons. So they charged him with, fighting with deadly weapons on a correction officer. Oh, and, wow. And, and so that's why he got sent to the, to the hole for that. Now he did his, his 90 days, maybe, maybe a little bit longer. Maybe he went twice. I don't remember. Um, but he got out while I was still there. He, he, he was good. He was locked on the block. He was good. He was never any problems. He was actually a pretty cool dude. Yeah. Um, he got out, but you know why he got out too? He wanted to box again. Yeah. He, he was like, fuck that. I, I I'm a behave. I, I know my future's in boxing. Yeah, he had he was just the shit, y'all, in yeah. in the Louisiana prison system, and really the national. He he was well known on, in prisons all over the country right. as probably the best boxer to ever come out of prison. Right, you know, and you're talking about look, Sonny Liston came out of prison. That's right, that's right. And he was getting a lot of comparisons to Sonny Liston. So these promoters, they're not only salivating at the chance to get a hold to a guy who has an extreme amount of talent. He also had a hell of a story, story. Right. and they love that. And he had a nickname in prison, which was the Black Rhino. Rhino. <laughs> Come on, y'all. If that don't scare yeah. you before you fight the six foot two, 290-pound right. boxer, right. I don't know what does. And, and basically, he got that because the most dangerous animal in the world, the Black Rhinoceros or the Black Rhino, was a name that um, – he embraced and and like Jim said, these promoters, holy shit. Now you got the black rhino prison coming out of prison. That's that's what sell tickets regardless. Yeah. Hey, look, it it is a you can't spin a better story right. with all of this. So he he gets out and he turns pro in 1998. So that was that was five years after I left him, or after the last time I saw him. And so how does he do? Well, his first four opponents, 
he knocked them out, right? Uh, and as a matter of fact, three of those first four it was inside of the first round. Right. I mean, he's cold-cocking people. Cold-cocking people. And uh, Ring Magazine actually named him, believe, believe it or not, y'all, he was later named the most exciting heavyweight fighter of the 2000s. That's true. And, and, and How about that? He absolutely was destroying people. You know, I remember um, late 80s, early 90s when Tyson was coming up and this, when pay-per-view had first come out. And we'd all put up 20 bucks and get a keg of beer. And like he knocked out Spinks in like, you know, 30 seconds or whatever it was. Um, Black Rhino was doing the same thing. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's no, these, you know, a lot of the times when the big guys fight, they'll get tired and they'll hug on each other and stuff. Uh, the Black Rhino didn't have time to get tired. He was mm-hmm. annihilating people like, and, like Tyson did when he was young. Yes. And loving it. Uh, and what's he doing? He's living his best life, y'all. He's making right. tons of money. He's yeah. knocking people out for yeah. a living. Everybody's courting him, and he does what, uh, sadly, a lot of uh, – seems like it's not just athletes, but it seems like they struggle with this because of, there's so much of an influx of money on, under sh- such a short period of time. And, and fame. And fame and all of that that he starts dabbling in cocaine. Right. Line here, line there. Yeah, yeah. And, Let me, and, you know, in the beginning, you give me a little bit of that sugar, whatever you yeah, tell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the beginning, you think you can handle it. It makes you feel even better, and you're on, already on top of the world. But remember, you came from a, a working cell block. Yeah. Right? I, I mean, first of all, you got out in 10 years instead of 40. You come from a working cell block. You build yourself up to the prison boxing system, and now you're building yourself up as one of the top heavyweights in the world. That's right, and he he continues on. He continues knocking people out, and eventually he scoops up the IBA Continental Heavyweight Title, and he actually won that title in Baton Baton Rouge. Rouge. It was at the the Bell of Baton Rouge in the atrium, and I didn't get to go for whatever reason, but I remember when it was – happening and the white guy from the cell reached out to me and said i can get you tickets you know do you want to come see him and i couldn't go for whatever reason but yep he won that there and even though that's not like the you know the biggest championship in the world is still a championship belt so that's right and uh continues on eventually he he suffers his first loss that was in march of 2001 and y'all it was one of the it was a Beating. He right. actually got floored seven times knocked, in that bout. Knocked down seven times in on, on the eighth. I think the referee finally stopped it, but it said it was a just basically like a bloodbath. Uh, the Black Rhino never gave up. No. You, know, you, get, you knock me down two times, I'm probably going to stay down. <laughs> yeah. Seven times. I mean, but he kept getting up and, and, and fighting back. That's it. And finally, the ref's like, mm, number eight, I got to yeah. stop this shit. He's going to kill him. Yeah, he went out on his shield and and uh, never quit. And after that bout, you know, you may you may start to think, well, that was it. That was it. Well, no. Nope. ETN couldn't be stopped. He ended up fighting six more bouts after his loss and knocked everybody out. Right. Uh, and he was, again, again, the talk of yeah. the boxing 
scene. And when you become that much of the talk yeah. of the boxing scene, eventually you're going to run into somebody you got to fight. But so when you were talk the, when he was talking the boxing scene, he basically, besides being the black rhino, they, he was always compared to young Mike Tyson. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, they actually knew each other before the opportunity showed its face and, and always got along. You know, Tyson, if, if you're a Tyson uh, fan, you would know that he grew up very rough. Right. He, had, he, he was very similar to ETN except for Cus D'Amato discovered Tyson before he had gotten so far out of hand that his whole life would have been spent in prison. So um, much younger when Tyson got discovered at 12 years old by Customato. But uh, ETN and Tyson had a respect for each other because they both came from the streets. They were both super tough, both amazing boxers. And in 2003, Memphis, Tennessee. That's it. Tyson come a-calling. Tyson came calling, and that was the first fight. If y'all remember this, that was the first fight that Tyson had the tribal tattoos on his face. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So if Tyson wasn't scary enough, yeah. Yeah. he comes out, and, I, and look, ETN, I'm sure, was intimidated. Right. Just like it, Tyson can intimidate anybody. I don't I care agree. how tough you are. Right. I agree. Yeah, and except except for Holyfield, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, he bit his ear off. Yeah, he yeah. did do that. Uh, so in 2003, Tyson, the pinnacle of boxing in the ETN fight, and Tyson beats the shit out of ETN in 48 seconds. Yeah, and now the same guy from the LP, I talked to him after that, uh, and he told me that what happened is one of the first punches that Tyson landed hit the black rhino on his eardrum and it busted his inner ear. So mm. ETN's equilibrium was off and he couldn't even defend himself. Yeah. Could you imagine how hard Tyson hits to, to bust, bust your, your freaking eardrum. inner eardrum in one punch? Oh, and God. But that, that he Ouch. said to ETN's credit, he tried to stand and do whatever shit you, the room spinning. And, and I mean, I can't even imagine that. So yeah. Tyson, he ain't gonna quit punching. Look, no, he ain't. <laughs> no, he ain't. And I remember, I will never forget the interview because I actually I can distinctly picture myself when I watched that live. Right. I actually watched that fight live. And after the broadcast, Jim Gray, who was a famous yep. Yep. interviewer in boxing, pulls Tyson and he says, you know, what did you think of ETN and all that? And how did your training go? And Tyson says uh, I broke my back last week, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> and I'll never forget. I was right. like, "What? Yeah, it, <laughs> it was know, bizarre, y'all. Yeah, that's crazy." But he supposedly broke his back but in training. You, you know that um, the reason they were fighting in Memphis, Tennessee, which was and couldn't get licensed in Nevada or anywhere else yeah. because of the, um, the uh, rape allegations and all that. Yeah. So if you're if you're getting a little upset about ETN because he lost and all that, don't cry for him too much. Right. Right. He made a million bucks, <laughs> literally yeah. a million bucks in forty eight seconds. Right. So he paid for forty eight seconds. I think I could last for forty eight seconds. He might have hit me in the back of the head, but. I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off. 48 seconds, I'm going to give you a show. For a million dollars? For a million dollars. So I'd fight Tyson today for a million dollars. I'm telling you, yeah. ETN gets that million bucks, and he unfortunately does. What a lot of people who get money that never had money 
do, and that is he blows it. He buys sports cars, jewelry, multiple houses, and he actually got into a couple of businesses that yeah. suffered. Yeah. He was in a busing company. It it went nowhere. He opened a restaurant, or he actually started a restaurant that never opened, yeah. and he did the cardinal sin in any business, which is didn't pay his taxes. Right. Oh, I don't care who you are. Tax Ask man. Al Capone about yeah, that. Tax man cometh, right? <laughs> tax man yeah. cometh. Uh, so he's spiraling downward. Yeah, and, and he's not surrounded by the best people. You know, taking advantage of him, and uh, like I said, he never had so many cousins. Okay, so he's going along in life, etn, and he's making a lot of bad decisions. And at some point, he decides it is a good idea to go get some money as he was spending all of his. Yeah. So he figures, yes. So he figures what better place to get money than a check cashing place, right? right? Genius idea. Genius idea. The only problem was he didn't have no checks. He didn't have a checkbook. He had anything to cash. I'll tell you what he did have. He had a pistol. He had a pistol. And a cocaine habit. And, and, and a bag of cocaine. And he was high as fuck, yeah. That's right. So uh, ETN goes to a check cashing place in Baton Rouge with a gun, and he pulls the weapon, and he decides he's going to hold up this check cashing place. And he gets a little, um, I guess you could say, a little pushback on that from the check cashing people. Right. And he takes a gun, and he shoots it in the air, and he says, I will kill you, bitch. That's exactly what he said, because they have it on recording, because she was dialing 911 while this was going on. She she was an African-American. African-American female. So eventually, he gets in his hands $2,000 after he fires that thing in the air, and he hauls ass out of there. Right. But unbeknownst to him... The silent alarm had been hit, and Baton Rouge PD was responding in force, and they met him in the parking lot. They did, and and they were there really fast for a specific reason, and that was that same day, sadly, an officer in Baton Rouge named Terry Malonsaw, who was serving a warrant with some other officers in Baton Rouge, was tragically killed. Yeah, they they were making entry. We call it a high risk warrant. It was a narcotics warrant, and they were making entry in the door, and he was shot and killed. And, and uh, rest in peace, brother. I was on the SWAT team at the time that that happened, and they went. We went from uh, serving high risk warrants, narcotics. We used to do them every day, and, and without the SWAT team calling out the SWAT because it took so long. The policy got changed after that. Any high-risk entry warrant, you had to use the SWAT team. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so rest in peace, brother. Yeah, so it was really uh, just more bad timing for uh, ETN as this was going on. They were able to easily get there. So uh, before they got there, he's trying to make an escape. Well, you know what? I think he's so poor at this time. He goes to rob a check cash in place with a piece of shit pistol and he leaves and he's trying to make his getaway and he makes two attempts that's right so uh, an officer with the baton Rouge uh, city police department who was in an exxon station 
across the street from the cash store uh, received a report of an armed robbery in progress. Comes over, comes over his radio, and and the officer observed uh, one of the check cashing employees actually outside of the business at this point, and he could tell she was panicking. Uh, so at this point he goes across the street and he starts talking to her and he says, did you report an armed robbery? Uh, and she says, yes. Uh, a bunch of police officers at this time are pulling up. It becomes pandemonium. And so ETN, uh, escapes into a little wooded area. And when he comes out of that wooded area, he sees a vehicle, uh, and he just jumps in the vehicle. I guess he thought he was going to hotwire it or whatever. He didn't realize when he jumped in, there were two children in the back of that vehicle. He goes to start it, realizes, oh, shit, there's no keys. Uh, the lady had went, ran into the uh, beauty supply place and just left her kids in there while she, I guess she was quickly grabbing shampoo or something. So... He goes to steal that vehicle, realizes he's on in it, and the cops are kind of on to him at this point. They're pursuing uh, him through the woods, and he's panicking. He's in a bind. and Still still armed. Still, yeah, still armed. Um, He immediately exits the vehicle, and he has his weapon in his hand, and he aims it at two police officers. Right. Not only does he aim it, he pulls the trigger, pulls the trigger and the gun jams click. So it's probably a piece of shit, uh, high tech nine millimeter or whatever. I mean, I'm sure if it was a expensive weapon, he could have traded it for Coke instead of trying to rob a cash store, but he pulled it and pulled it again. He panics again, obviously, because at this point, y'all ETN just tried to shoot two police officers, uh, and if it wasn't for that gun jamming, he would have shot them, possibly killed them. Uh, so he panics. He runs to a gold Pontiac Grand Am. He opens the door, and there's a driver in there. He puts the gun to the driver's head. He says, get out. Uh, the driver, he protests this. Why? Because his two young children right. are in the vehicle. Kitty daycare around there. That's it. So ETN pulls him out of the car physically, throws him to the ground, jumps in the car, and starts to drive away in reverse at a high rate of speed. He just basically goes backwards. Uh, He gets about 60 feet. The vehicle hits a curb, and it stalls. And officers approach the vehicle with the weapons drawn, and they apprehend ETN. uh, How do you think that apprehension went? Yeah. uh, (laughs) Yeah. I don't know, man. The, I mean, his weapons jammed, and they, I'm sure it was what we call a felony stop. I'm sure ETN ended up getting some, the black rhino ended up getting some dirt in his face. Oh, I, I can look, and then don't forget, they are, they are already dealing with that day a police officer getting right. shot oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and absolutely, killed. Absolutely, and you just tried to kill. And you just tried more. to kill two more. Right. If I'm a police officer, you're no, getting no. a fist to the face. Yeah, well, you're definitely... <laughs> I mean, swim would would have punched him. Yeah, swim, <laughs> swim would have gave him some some justice. That was just us. Uh, but he might have he might have sprung a leak too. But anyway, the y'all, you know, he he gets arrested, uh, armed robbery, 
two counts of attempted first-degree murder on police officers. So God or somebody was taking care of them letting that, that and those officers letting that pistol jam. Um, Amen. He, he gets prosecuted, y'all, by the East Baton Rouge DA's office, and the prosecutor was Prem Burns. Now, I don't think we've ever talked about her on Bloody Angola, but I know her. I've been in the courtroom with her. She is fire. All right. So they had their best prosecutor on it, uh, Hiller Moore's the best prosecutor. The the DA generally in, in bigger parishes the, is, is a political figurehead who um, oversees all the cases, but they have their top lieutenants or generals, whatever you want to call them, that handled the big cases. Prim Burns was, was the one. And well known for for right. the serial killing, yeah, yeah, for Derek Tyler, mm-hmm. right? And the, uh, but it, as as well as every top case in, in East Baton Rouge, so um, she said that across thirty four years and one hundred plus felony cases, and even taking down meddling cartel members and serial killers. That she she recalls looking at ETN and thinking that dude's huge, right? Uh, um, and she says she, she remembers the day he was sentenced. He said something to her like, "I'm so sorry. The drugs were just really bad for me." But Burns also remembered the 911 call and the words ETN barked out that were recorded on security footage. Says, "I'm going to kill you." And she remembers using that against him in her open remarks. And she remembers the jury convicting the boxer quickly and easily. The later years later, um, the prosecutor picked apart Etienne's process in the trial in the bar, and he, you know, he said he received insufficient representation. And she was like, mm, "Dude, you could have had Johnny Cochran, and you weren't getting off on this charge." And and the jury. Uh, possibly in prejudice, she was like, "Your victims were black. The, um, you're black. You know, it's not a racial issue, right?" So, but anyway, he, he y'all, he got sentenced to forever this time. But she, and he said, "But for luck, he would have been on death row." Y'all, he got a hundred and sixty years, and guess where we was going? Bloody Angola. <laughs> No doubt about it. And look, let's let's recap real quick. This is a guy that just a couple of years, as a matter of fact, a year before this, had just gotten a million dollars and had fought arguably the most, uh, I would say the second most popular boxer of all time outside of Muhammad Ali, which right. was Mike Tyson. Right. Definitely the most popular uh, boxer in my era uh, yeah, right. my by far. Um, and now you just got sentenced to forever as what he aptly put it the rest of your life, pretty much in Angola and ETN actually in 2004, for whatever reason, applied for a pardon to Mike Foster, the the then governor, which was denied, obviously. Um, I don't know if he thought his popularity might get him a pardon, but it wasn't working with Mike. I, I think he was also trying to say stuff about 
traumatic brain injury and CT and all, right. that, all that other bullshit. Right. And and look, this the, here's why I don't buy that at all. And I and I definitely think that brain injury from boxing or pro football absolutely it affects your decision making and all those sorts of things. But you were doing this at eighteen. I mean, you were yeah. robbing people at eighteen. Right. Well, and this lawyer said he's entitled to a new sentence and because um, the CTA he should be a major consideration. No, he says sorry. it's not his fault. The science wasn't there ahead of time, so he can not do all this bullshit. So I'm not even gonna touch on that anymore. Yeah, that's that's ridiculous. Now, one thing we haven't mentioned to you is a unique, and when I tell y'all this is a unique and an absolutely god given talent, is his ability in the painting world. Yeah, art paintings. Well, I told Canvas. you, I told you about the drawing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that he was a um, a painter, also, but I he drew that picture of that girl for me. Yeah, so if you're a if you're a patron member of any sort, we're gonna put this on Patreon, and it's just some examples of his artwork. Oh, it is unbelievable, yeah. y'all. The uh, it, God definitely touched him and and gave him a talent with artwork. So we're going to put that up there. And look, Woody mentioned this earlier, and I want to read this to y'all. Woody had mentioned, hey, he was a nice guy, you know, and and it was was cool. Great personality, right? Cool dude. Um, I'm going to read you a letter that he wrote to a fan, and this is in 2019, so this is fairly recent. And I'm also going to put this up on Patreon. But he, uh, a fan had just wrote him and asked him for an autograph, basically, a boxing fan. And he said, sorry I took so long getting back to you. Just rediscovered the letter you sent me at the end of May. And I always take time writing anyone back since they took time to write me. All letters are screened for contraband. And because of some drug heads attempts to smuggle contraband in here, the mailroom dis." discarded the index card you sent me to sign. So I'm sending you this large piece of paper signed by me to answer your questions. I am still healthy and I look forward to a better future. I will get out of here. And he says that in all caps, I paint and I cut hair almost every day. Number three, I'm not in a cell. I'm in a dormitory with a bit over 100 guys, and I do watch TV sometimes, mostly news and sports. I have a TV in the barber shop where I work. Number four, my whole boxing career was an interesting story. Started writing a book about it, but I haven't finished. Number five, fighting Mike Tyson was like fighting the other 30 fighters I fought. It was a job that that took care of my family. I never got into all the hype. And I met Tyson years before they even talked about us fighting each other. And number six, the most fun I had in boxing ring was every time the referee raised my hand as the winner after all that hard training. You take care of yourself, and I wish you and yours all the best. Clifford Etienne. Pretty cool. So reading that letter, that don't sound like a guy that tried to kill two police officers Rob, Rob a check cashing place. So when Woody mentioned that, you know, he seemed like a cool, nice guy that reading that letter, that sounds like a guy that is out of prison right now right. is living his best life. Just doesn't sound like yeah. that type of character does it. But that cocaine shit does funny shit. Even to yeah. the best of people and will never take away the fact. Nose gold. Not only 
did he try to kill those two officers? But who knows what would have happened to those kids in the car, et cetera, had he not wrecked it, uh, installed it out. But, you know, when he went back in the prison this time, y'all, it wasn't without incident. I mean, he had yeah. he had issues. Um, the I mean, he survived an attack. and He would start painting. Well, we'll talk about that. Yeah. He would start painting. And um, the last I had heard of him before we talked about this was I was watching something on the rodeo in about Angola Radio, mm-hmm. and they had him selling his paintings, uh, and they were street scenes in New Orleans. Yep. Now, you're not allowed to make money off your crimes, right? He's not painting or trying to kill two cops, but he's painting – like murals, not murals, but like oil paintings. Like yeah. shit would cost you twenty thousand dollars in a gallery, and it was fantastic. The one I saw was of a second line. And that's a funeral procession for those who aren't from Louisiana, where they play the music and the jazz band does it, and they go behind the coffin and all that. But he was very, very good at it. Yeah, and and he's his paintings are hanging, you know, all across the world. People commission him to do paintings, et cetera. But I mean. Even when he was in the pain room one time, somebody tried to kill him. Yeah. yeah um, so so bad, in fact, that he had to get transferred. Right. right. Um, and, and and I do want to mention on those paintings, uh, a lot of people may be surprised to know that one of his paintings hangs in the New Orleans Police Department. Right. I didn't know it, Sure enough. Well, yeah. I found that somewhere. Only Jim Chaffin. <laughs> only Jim I found Jim that somewhere. That it's actually, and there's a, a picture online where they, the two New Orleans PD officers are posing in the, in the police department and his painting is hanging. And I, I guess to them, it's an example of convicts have talent too somewhere. And yeah, it, God touches us all, gives us all unique talents, and that was his. And it's just a shame, in addition to his boxing, which was also a unique talent. Yeah. And I'm going to regress for a second. When I said he attacked a, a correctional officer with his fist, I believe now, I'm thinking back on it, I think it was in the, just another inmate. But instead of being charged with a regular fist fight, which wouldn't send you to work in cell block, yeah. they charged him for fighting with weapons because his hands were considered deadly weapons. Yeah. He was such a renowned boxer. I believe it. Um, but y'all, you know, he would go on after that attack. Anyway, he talks about um, surviving COVID mm-hmm. when they put them all in cells when everybody else in the world was trying to be separated. They were locking it down. He talks about that. But at some point after the attack, uh, another inmate, a friend of his, told him, say, hey, man, basically – you got to get your shit together. I mean, he'd let himself go. He'd gain weight. He was dressing sloppily. Uh, um, and Etn listened to him. So he started dressing better. He shaved his head bald. He started to exercise every day at 5 in the morning. Uh, and he, he said he stayed away from rats or dudes that would never amount to shit in their lives. And um, that friend so he asked him, said, what do you need to start painting again? And Etienne told him, said two weeks later, the supplies arrived like magic, canvas boards, paints, and brushes. And the friend told Etienne, you're the black rhino, the man who went from prison to pinnacle boxing. And eventually, Etienne returned to the painting room. Hearing or no hearing, he had to move forward. Now, talking about his hearing, y'all, I told you his eardrum got busted uh, by Mike Tyson. By Mike Tyson. And his equilibrium was still off and all that. But he, he to this day, paints. And I, 
Jim and I have been, you know, had several offers to attend the Angola Radio, and I said, that's the last fucking place you'll ever catch me on the face of this earth <laughs> because all the people <laughs> I've put up there. But if I ever do go, I'm going to go see the Black Rhino. There you go. And I guarantee you he remembers to do it. We need to do that trip soon. Yeah. And uh, that would make for a great uh, – that make for a great episode. And incidentally, uh, we do want to welcome Woody back last week. I, of course, I flew solo yep, for yep. you patron hey, members. Hey, I appreciate you doing that. So we did a bonus episode. It's only up on Patreon. So if you're curious to hear about it, it was called Iron Mike. Iron Mike. And it's about uh, it's about a a guy that could fight in prison for sure. Right. But it's a just an absolutely crazy story of a guy who killed three inmates inside of angola yes Yes. uh and just some some amazing uh stuff there but what he was on a special assignment which in the future we'll be able to tell everybody about and i also recorded another episode that i'll be dropping as a bonus episode it's a boss bitches part two uh, but I'm glad to have Woody back now because yeah. I have to uh, hey, freaking think all that myself, all, brother. I appreciate it. But tell me about <laughs> Boss Bitches too. Yeah, so Boss Bitches too. Uh, of course, if you listen to the first one, we feature Martha Stewart, uh, M. Diddy for those right. <laughs> those and and a bunch of other uh, uh lady convicts. And this one, much of the same. It's for other lady convicts. And and look, you go, join Patreon and you'll find out who they are. Right. How about that? And so y'all you go and check it out. Um, we have numerous bonus episodes. And, and Jim, I appreciate you covering me while I'm gone. Oh, no worries, the, man. Uh, uh, the bonus episodes are fire. And uh, as all, all bloody Angola, but the patreon or we have different tier levels now um each go look it up and jim can it'll be in the show notes yeah and and i'm glad you mentioned it because i want to shout out we're going to shout out uh we've got over 130 members now we're blessed to have that they support us we couldn't do this without them so we're going to read out real quick each of our tie down and warden team members give them a little bit of a shout out and just to tell you our real really fast or what our teams include so the warden team is our top tier uh you get ad free episodes obviously early access to these episodes you get full transcripts of all the bloody angola thursday regular drops any shows that we do that are live you get automatic vip access right. uh and and you get a free piece of Bloody Angola merch every quarter. So four That's times a year, right. we're sending you something. And I know I've sent out a bunch of merch uh, lately to a bunch of people that are our Warden Team members. I appreciate y'all so yes, much. If you're a Warden you. Team member and you hadn't got uh, that first piece of, piece of merch, please just message hey, me and if, we'll get it to if you. If you're a Patreon member on any level and you know um, – and because it's it's a lot, y'all, but it, um, it's very important to us. If we've missed something, we're human beings. Please, please, please message us. Yeah, check into it. Yes, and uh, so that's our warden team. Uh, we also have our tie down team, which they get ad free episodes, early access, full transcripts right. of those Thursday drops, and they also get our Sally Port companion episodes, like the Boss Bitches, Balls, bitches. that uh, that we're going to drop as a bonus for them. Um, so Woody is going to read our tie down teams and I'm going to read our warden teams today. All right. And the tie down team gets you 
That gets you the ad-free episodes, the early access, the full transcripts, and the Sally Port companion episodes. Carol Hagen, you are a love. We want to appreciate you for being a tie-down team member. I hope you're enjoying your benefits. and We appreciate you so much, all right? And Kirsten Dahl. Now, Kirsten has been a, 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 a lifer forever, and she used to send me pickles and all kinds of stuff, Jim. That, there you um, go. But thank you, Kirsten, for supporting Bloody Angola. Also, we really, really love and appreciate you. You're awesome. And Lisa Stevens, well, I know who you are, and thank <laughs> you for being a tied down team member and we love and appreciate you so much. And Tina Johnson. Tina, thank you for being a tie-down team member. You rock. You kick ass, and we appreciate you. We couldn't do it without you. And Miss Julie Easterday. Julie, thank you so much for being a tie-down team member. Enjoy those benefits, sweetie. All right, and we also want to thank our warden team members. Our warden team is our top tier. You just can't get any more than what we give those warden team members. They are our highest support. We love and and we look. If you can't even be a patron member, we still love you and appreciate you. Absolutely, but uh, we really, really appreciate the support of all our patron team, especially our warden team members. Yeah, and especially in these hard times when when eggs are nine dollars a dozen, and you (laughs) you take the time to subscribe, we're going to hook you up. That's right. So, Melissa Jewell, thank you you. so much for being a warden team member, Miss Christine Spence. Thank you, Christine. Thank you so very much for being a warden team member. And how about Miss Amber Morrow? Miss Amber, thank you. We love you and appreciate you. 100%. Miss Lisa Marks. Miss Lisa Marks, you. We don't even have a term for you. We love you. You know, we love you. Double warden team member. (laughs) Yeah. She's just amazing. Thank you so much. Love you. Uh, Mandy Oliver. Mandy Oliver. Miss Mandy. Thank you so much. She's awesome. Leah. I'll take Yes. Kafiria. Part time researcher, full time crime junkie. And Hellraiser. <laughs> you don't want to mess with Leah. Leah, thank you so much. That's that. right. So that's our warden team. And uh, we really appreciate the support of all of those. Uh, members, we're going to be shouting out as many as we can every week here going forward. Thank you so much, and until next time, I'm Jim Chapman. I'm Woody Overton, your host of Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making, the complete story of America's bloodiest prison. Peace. <laughs> Bloody Angola is an Envision podcast production in partnership with Workhouse Connect. Music produced and composed by Alfie DeRuin in Studio 433 with vocals by Thomas Kane. Created and hosted by Jim Chapman and Woody Overton. Straight line, shackle and chain. Oh, gruesome Gertie is calling my name. There is no mercy in this penitentiary. 
Just ask the hillstring gang Wrangle the three MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.